0: I tell you, I say it probably every week or close to every week. I may word it differently, but it's always a joy to stand before you and open the word of God. It's not always easy, but it's always a joy. It's an honor and a privilege. Go ahead and open to Nehemiah chapter 3. So we're going to be spending a lot of time today. Last week, I began to walk through the book of Nehemiah as he traveled to Jerusalem with the king of Persia's permission to rebuild the city walls and the gates of the city. Now, just to recap a little bit about where we find ourselves in chapter 3, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC. Then in 536 BC, a group of Jews who were led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua returned first restoring the altar and then laying the foundation of the temple. If you fast forward 20 years after that to 516 BC, the temple's rebuilt. This is referred to as the second temple period in history. Later on, Nehemiah gets permission from the king to come back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which is what we started with, okay? And this is where we arrive in chapter 3. The work that Nehemiah is leading is about to begin. We're going to go ahead and read all of Nehemiah chapter 3. It's verses 1 through 32, which is a lot. And there are a lot of names in here. There are a lot of people listed, but it's important. This is this is God's inspired word. It's there for a reason. I'm going to read the whole thing. I've given you a handout with a map on it particularly for this so that as I'm reading, you can follow along in your Bible. And on the screen, but if you need to reference the map uh, they actually, you're going to note they start, uh, when they start the rebuilding they're going to go counterclockwise so just so you can kind of follow along if you are a map or a visual person there's a map up here as well But I was going to just put that one up there but the number one smallish and number two the, the scripture is going to be up there so it's going to go away so you've got one in front of you for this purpose. So let's begin in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasenah built the fish gate. Can I stop right there real quick? These names sound different when you're reading them silently than they do when you read them aloud. Sorry. Pick it back up, part way through verse 3 there. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, meramoth the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Mesh- Meshhezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bena, repaired. And next to, him, next to them, the Tikuhites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joida, the son of Passiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besoedi, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Malatia, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah and of, the Mizpah, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Herhai, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him Hanani, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephai, the son of Hur, uh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedai, the son of Harimoth, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Malchajai, the son of Harim and Hashub, the son of Pahathmoab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halashesh, Ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired he and his daughters, Hannah and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the Valley Gate. They rebuilt and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the Dung Gate. Malkeja, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-haharam, repaired the Dung Gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hoseth, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men after him the levites repaired rehum the son of Bani. next to him hashabiah ruler of half the district of keilah repaired for his district after him their brothers repaired bavai son of henadad ruler of half the district of keilah next to him ezer son of jeshua ruler of mizpah repaired Another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zebai repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimuth, the son of Uriah, son of hakkoz repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house after them Azariah the son of Messiai son of Ananiah repaired beside his own house after him Benui the son of Hennadad repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner Palau the son of Uzzi repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the garden After him, Pedei, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemei, the son of Shekei, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zelph, Zelaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate. And to the upper chamber of the corner, And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand and apply it to our lives today. Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray you'd open the eyes of our heart. We pray that you would help us understand. Pray that you'd help me be clear in explaining what's going on here pray that you would help us to know what to do with it in our lives. Most of all, I pray that you would be glorified above all, Jesus. That I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would be big here this morning. Father God, bless us with knowing your word, with understanding it, and applying it properly in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Lots of names. Lots of names we don't name our kids usually. Lots of building, uh, wall sections, gates, things like that. But there's one thing that I want you to notice right at the outset, and this bleeds out of what we talked about last week with Nehemiah telling them, let's arise and build. And they said, yes, let's build. They were motivated. Nehemiah had motivated them. So if you're keeping notes, point number one is the workers were motivated. C.S. Lewis is one of the most famous authors in history. He's probably most well-known for having written The Chronicles of Narnia, which are some of my favorites, even as a grown man. In the book Prince Caspian, we meet a unique character. This character's name is Reepicheep, and he's a mouse. Let's hear how C.S. Lewis describes him. He says this, Reepicheep is the chief mouse. He is the self-appointed humble servant to Prince Caspian and perhaps the most valiant king, knight in all Narnia. His chivalry is unsurpassed, as also are his courage and skill with the sword. Those are the words of C.S. Lewis. Now if you've read the book Prince Caspian or maybe you've read it to your kids or you've seen the movie that they put out uh, several years back this part is actually depicted in the film. reep though he's smaller than other warriors, because he's a mouse, he's more courageous, and he loves Aslan and Aslan's prince more than anything else. He's even willing to give his life and loyal to them. And during a battle in Prince Caspian, Reepicheep's almost killed, but Lucy heals him with medicine from her special diamond bottle. I'm not going to explain that whole thing. It's a make-believe book, okay? But so she heals him, and he gets up because he sees Aslan there, and he hops off the gurney or whatever it is. He hops up off the ground or wherever he's laying. He's healed and he looks and he kneels before Aslan. At the moment when he kneels before Aslan, although he's been healed from the brink of death, he notices something. He notices that his tail is missing. It had been cut off. He begs Aslan, the great lion, to restore it, which leads to a conversation between Aslan about whether the mouse thinks too highly of his own honor in his tail. But then something else happens. Aslan who, by the way, is the Christ figure in these books. Aslan notices the other mice standing there with drawn swords. And here's what Lewis wrote of them. And of what Aslan said. Why have your followers all drawn their swords, may I ask, said Aslan. May it please your high majesty, said the second mouse, whose, names, whose name was Pepacheek. That's just Reepacheek and Peepacheek. We are all waiting to cut off our own tails if our chief must go without his. We will not bear the shame of wearing an honor which is denied to the high mouse. Ah, roared Aslan. You have conquered me. You have great hearts. Not for the sake of your dignity, Reepicheep, but for the love that is between you and your people. You shall have your tail again. And he regrows Reepicheep's tail. Now, why would I tell you about a knight that's a mouse in this story while I'm preaching through Nehemiah? Here's what I want you to see. What kind of loyalty and love they showed him, but why? Why were they willing to to cut off their tails in loyalty to him? They loved this mouse chief who was more honorable and courageous than any of the men or many of the men, his goal in life, Reba Chief's whole goal, was to serve Aslan's purpose, Aslan's people, and the true king. And this mouse was ready to protect what he loved. And he would do whatever it took to see that that was accomplished. This is the kind of loyalty that inspired... That, that so his living that kind of life inspired the loyalty of his followers, of of the other, of Pipachik and the other mice, right? This is the kind of loyalty that I believe Nehemiah inspired in getting the Israelites to rally around the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. See, we already talked last week, and if you missed last week, you should go back and listen to the audio on the website or on the podcast feed. He was convinced of the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of God, and if we are going to move the needle... We also have to be convinced of the truth, goodness, and beauty of God that is displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this beauty is moved forward in the work of the church. So, what was so the workers were motivated to do this because they were motivated. They saw Nehemiah sold out to the Lord, right? And they, his loyalty to see God's name uh, brought glory, the city on which God had said, his, said he would set his name rebuilt. The nation, the, the, uh, the people complain about, the, his enemies complain about earlier that he was seeking the welfare of the Jewish people. So he motivated the workers. The workers were motivated to do this work. Secondly, Nehemiah organized the workers. He organizes the workers. I don't know if you caught that, but as I'm reading through all that, as you're looking through, it's very organized. It's not a, hey, y'all come sort of thing. There was motivation and organization. In the previous section, Nehemiah had motivated the people to build and they were ready to do the work. They were ready to work. But now he had this crowd of workers who was ready and he had to figure out and organize them in how to do it. So you want to rebuild a wall of a city and this map that you've got in front of you is as best we can tell kind of what it looked like. We may not know exactly What it looked like. But that's as close as, you know, scholarly we've kind of got. Have you ever heard the old saying, though? How do you eat an elephant? How do you eat an elephant? The answer is one bite at a time. Nehemiah had surveyed the destruction. He looked at what, remember, he rode around and walked around and looked at what was going on. And he came up with a plan. And now it's time to put his plan into action people were willing to do the work. Nehemiah uses as a team strategy where he's got each team doing the work they're capable of doing. The work was divided into 14 sections, 43 teams or something like that. And he gets these people out and you work on that section and these people work on this section, these people work on this section. Now I want you to notice something. Notice the occupation because it gives us the occupation of some of these people, Right? Who were the workers who did this? Now their workers were organized into guilds so you'd have like perfumers and gilded you know different people, okay? So here's the list and I'll put this up it'll it'll come on the screen, a list of the occupations of the workers. There were government officials. Government officials working. That's a thing. Anyway, sorry. Government officials. Government officials, priests, levites, the gatekeeper goldsmiths, merchants, perfumers, and temple servants. So we've got a pretty wide range of people, okay? So those are the occupations of the workers. Now let's look at some of the regionality of the workers. Well, you've got workers from Jericho. So talk about people coming from Jericho to work there. And then you've got this group of people called the Tekoites, and it says if you look in verse 5 and next to them the Tekoites repaired but their nobles would not stoop to serve their to serve the Lord their Lord The nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord In other words It seems like their nobles may have resented Nehemiah's leadership and were refusing to participate in what God was doing. In this instance, one would serve God by obeying Nehemiah, and they refused. We see the rest of the Tychoites, though, they repaired here, and then they're mentioned later on in the passage as well. So you had people from different regionalities, but they're here to repair the wall, you have people of different occupational backgrounds. And then you have lists of people, many of them by families. Many of them by families. I want to point out verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halishesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Everybody was getting involved here. It's weird to see this written, he and his daughters. That's just a weird thing for, a particularly Old Testament, but anytime time in that culture, that's kind of a different, a different deal. But there was buy-in with his whole family. He got out there, he got out there with his daughters and the girls worked right there with him. So we're listed, you, you find that they're there and there's families and this guy son of this guy and then you have them Something mentioned about their proximity to the work. Many are listed by families, but some are listed by where they lived. They could repair the wall near their house, which makes sense, right? Isn't the part by your house, the part of the wall by your house, if you're in charge of that, you're going to make sure that thing is strong, right? It just makes sense. Notice this, though. There's someone who's not listed. Professional builders. Professional builders. There are no professional builders listed. Common people are doing this work together. They're from different backgrounds and occupations and families. And they're working together to see this task completed. And this prefigures cooperation in the local church. It's a picture of what it should look like when the Church of Jesus Christ bands together under the task of the Great Commission. When we work selflessly with bowed knees to Jesus. When nobody says, I'm not stooping the knee, I'm, we're going to work, they got, they got left out of it. They weren't part of it. They didn't stoop their knee. So the workers were organized. But Also, the workers were unified. The workers were unified. I think that should be a three, but anyway, if you're following along the workers were unified. Derek Thomas writes about the excitement of this passage for believers in Jesus Christ today. And here's what Thomas says. It's exciting because here we see an example of what the church can be, a powerful and united force attempting and accomplishing great things for God, suggestive because it tells us that this should not be an isolated incident in the life of the church, but a powerful incentive to learn from the example shown here and be equally busy fulfilling God's call for us in our own time. A lot of churches will rally around for a building campaign or something they're doing, and they rally around that time, and then after that, they go back to whatever they were doing before. The picture here is of continual cooperation, not just for a time, not just to accomplish one task, but that we would continue working together. This is a picture of what it should look like. This picture of this one time is a picture of what it should look like all the time in the local church. So what can we learn from this and how it applies to us individually and as a church? Well, here are a few ways. Number one, don't shrink from big challenges. Don't shrink away from big challenges. Christians should not shrink back from a big challenge. God has given us a big mission that we cannot complete without him, but we trust in him. We have just as much of the spirit of Christ in this church, and this church is the people, not the building, but there's just as much of the spirit of Christ here when we meet than there is as there is in a church around the corner or down the street or across town or in another place. So we must move forward in knowing and serving Christ. We must seize, we must move to seize opportunities that the Lord puts before us. Sometimes God puts opportunities before us, we see them, we need to move in and seize those opportunities to do that, that ministry, that work that the Lord has put before us. A great New Testament example of this is the church at Antioch launching a missionary movement by sending out Paul and Barnabas to the world. We should be together answering the call in Philippians chapter 2, 14 through 16. It says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Hold fast to the word of life. Nehemiah was a man who knew and stood on the word of God. Hold fast to the word of life. Know and stand upon the word of God. So don't shrink back from big challenges. Know that we are to shine in a crooked and perverse generation, crooked and twisted generation. Second, not only should we not shrink back from big challenges, but Christians must face challenges together as one body in Christ. The unity of the workers here is pretty amazing. Looking at them being from different areas of of different regionalities, they've been in, you know, you've got (laughs) This is during the period of exile. Their city walls have been knocked down. Their different occupations, backgrounds, families. And here they are, unified to accomplish this task for the glory of God. Each one of them assumed the responsibility for what they could handle. Some could handle more, so they gladly did. Some could handle more than others, so they gladly did. That's, that's, what, it, that's what I mean to point out. When it, when it says some worked another section, did you see their name appeared again, and they said, oh, they, they did another section. None of them sought the limelight, the attention, or applause, at least none that we have record of, okay? So I'm going on what we have record of here. None sought the limelight, the attention, or the applause. Everyone got their hands dirty, from government officials to temple servants. A good leader demonstrates humility. That's one of the traits of a good leader, is when they can demonstrate humility to the people. It's striking that the first person mentioned in this work team, verse 1, is the high priest himself he, along with his fellow priests, took up their tools and began working on the sheep gate. It's in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. We see the, the high priest even was not like, well, I'm too good for this. I'm the high priest. He's, nope. We're going to roll up the sleeves and let's get going. They displayed a deep awareness that everyone counted. There was not a rock star mentality. This is the kind of living we find in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, where it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. There were different roles. There were different roles, but they needed each other. And they needed each other to do their role to do their part that was how this worked and unity and we see that number three christian unity lays the groundwork for great effectiveness christian unity lays the groundwork for great effectiveness part of the effectiveness that they had was because of what was missing do you get that there's something missing i don't mean the professional builders okay but there's something else that was missing that was part of the effectiveness of, of their unity. Here's what was missing. And I, if you're paying attention, it was mentioned in the passage in Hebrews, or, or sorry, in Philippians I read. Grumbling and disputing seem to be missing. And their unity is the undergirding for being effective at their task. It seems like I don't see a bunch, other than you've got the guys who won't, don't bend, they don't want to serve, they don't want to be involved but the group that's actually working you don't hear about any grumbling or arguing disputing those things seem to be missing and when those things are missing we see this unity and effectiveness there's no boasting in one's accomplishments i don't there's not a record here of somebody saying look at that great gate i built there's no laziness they're all out there working There's no one upsmanship. There's no procrastination. There's no passing the buck to others. No recognition seeking. Well, I'm only going to do this if you write about it in the paper. There's none of that. So, how did they reach unity? How did they reach this kind of unity in their task? Well, first, they listened to the exhortation from Nehemiah and they took it seriously. They listened to what he told them in chapter 2. In verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. It goes on in verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, Let us rise up and build so they strengthened their hands for the good work they listened to the exhortation that this godly man had given them and they took it seriously they saw the significance of the reproach that they lived under in which the lord's name and his fame had not been recognized among them they recognized that And they needed to take action to do something about it. They repented of their pettiness and their laziness and their stinginess. They were gripped by the ability of a unified people under the blessing of the Lord. That's the other thing. If this is just a group of people, this doesn't happen like this. It's a group of people unified under the blessing of the Lord. And then they put their feet to commitment. Unity was not something they just talked about, but they lived it in action. We talk a lot about unity today. Even politicians talk about unity. It's not the same unity we're talking about, okay? We're talking about unity in Jesus, okay? Unity in the Lord. There's a lot of talk about unity. There's less action of unity. See, we can talk about unity all day and not experience it until we're willing to selflessly die to some of the things that we, are rec- we want recognition, we want our own opinion, we want our own choice, we want our own. In some churches, it's the color of the carpet, right? And we got to have our way. We're not talking about uniformity. It's okay to have a disagreement of, I like red carpet, I like blue carpet. That's okay as long as you don't make it disunifying. It's okay to not be uniform. We're not all going to dress the same. We're not all going to look the same physically, right? But it's a unity of heart and life as we move forward as a church. They put feet to their commitment. They didn't just talk about it. They did it. They refused to be dissuaded by the naysayers. We're going to talk more about the naysayers next week the the actually we're going to talk about the opposition that they face next week but the naysayers the ticket nobles right who wouldn't wouldn't stoop to serve their lord the rest of them weren't dissuaded by that okay they just passed the mortar or whatever they were showing in their unity and their work that they believed God's promise to Jeremiah regarding the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Remember, this didn't just start with Nehemiah. Jeremiah had prophesied about this stuff. And they were showing in the way they unified and did work that they believed it and were working for it to be accomplished. Jeremiah 29:10 through 14. This passage is not about high school graduations, by the way. It's used a lot for that, but that is not what it's about. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is... This is a promise that God made to them. And they were acting based on their belief, their trust, that God would keep that promise to them. That's a promise that he made to the Jews, to the Israelites. That he had a plan for them. That he had plans for their welfare, not for evil, for a future, and a hope that he would restore their fortunes. They needed to seek him, and they were trusting that. If we seek him, he'll restore us. Much like we see the different people who were in different places to build certain parts of the wall, God has placed each one of us in the body of Christ as he desires for his purposes. You're not not here for yourself. You're here for his purposes. Note the affinity of the workers. Realize that someone in each team God had gifted to lead out in the effort. One person is listed who led out in that effort. Everyone did their part. And when we work as one body, many parts, one body unified we see great effectiveness for the kingdom i want to, i want you to notice something as we kind of roll towards the conclusion here i want you to notice something though about the priest's work in the very first verse that where the high priest is working before they set the doors on the sheep gate they do something before they set the doors on the sheep gate they consecrate it This is an interesting account, and we don't hear about the other gates being consecrated. So I started to ask, why this one? Like, why is that word consecrated there? Why did they do that? Yeah, they're the priests, right? So, but we don't read about the other gates being consecrated. Well, to seek an answer to this, let me tell you a little bit more about the sheep gate. According to Derek Thomas, who I quoted earlier, says... The sheep gate is the one through which sheep were brought for sacrifice and laid directly adjacent to the temple. Explaining the interest given to this gate by the priests, they were working on the section containing what was in effect their front door. This section was also consecrated by the priests, suggesting that the project was far more than a piece of civil engineering. These priests saw themselves as working for the Lord and desiring his blessing on their efforts. The sheep... That would be sacrificed at the temple for sin were brought in through this gate they recognized the importance of this as the gate the sacrifice entered the sacrificial system was central to their relationship with uh, to god and the covenant and they would want to re-establish that as quickly as possible remember when i said years before when zerubbabel and jeshua came back what'd they do well they built the altar and then they set the foundations for the temple Now, the the church doesn't sacrifice the blood of animals now. But that was their main thing of like, we're going to consecrate this because this is where the sacrifices are going to enter, where the the animals are going to come in that are going to atone. Their blood is going to atone for sin. But we don't sacrifice animals now. We have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, God in the flesh, who was the perfect sacrifice. He died for our sins in our place once and for all as the only acceptable sacrifice. And those who believe this good news that he died in our place and rose from the grave and is coming again get the honor of working to see the kingdom of God advanced and people restored to right relationship with God. Being fully surrendered to him is how we can move forward toward unified service for him. Jesus is the only way that any of this can happen. So they go from, they're consecrated and bringing the sacrifices in, it just shows how big big and important that was of that sacrifice, how they understood that sin had to be atoned for, had to be paid for, but we don't rely on the blood of animals, we have a Savior in Jesus. Jesus is the only way that any of this can happen. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you the story of Repachip and the loyalty that inspired in his followers. Nehemiah was convinced of the goodness and worth of God. He wanted God's glory in his people, he wanted the city where God had said he put his name to be rebuilt and the nation restored. Because Nehemiah was not working for himself, but for the accomplishment of the promises of God in God's word and was obedient, because of that, the people showed him that loyalty. They followed. They also worked for the restoration and for the unified purpose. We see great effectiveness born out of their unity of following the promises of God. God does amazing things through his people. God does amazing things through his people do you believe that god does amazing things through his people god can do amazing things through you and me so the question before us is will we stoop bow the knee and work in unity for the good of the kingdom and the advancement of the gospel would you stand and pray with me God, I'm so thankful for your word. God, you know I feel so inadequate most of the time. But your word is sufficient. Your word is true, it is inerrant, it is all that we need for life, for godliness. God, I pray that you would give us that unity, that sweet unity that we see here. God, I pray that you would use me. That you would do work through us as a church. That we would see your kingdom grown, your gospel advanced. People rescued from darkness and death into life everlasting. I pray for each person in this room and listening to my voice online. I pray that right now in their hearts you'd bring to mind where they've not stooped or bowed or the things in their life that may keep them from being unified. Convict them of any sin and bring them quickly to repentance. Convict me of any sin in my heart and bring me quickly to repentance. Help us to love and to forgive and to serve. May the love that I know we have for each other just continue to grow in this place among these people. And may that be an evidence to a watching world that you are real, that you are good, and that you save Jesus, that you save, only you can save. Help us live what we say we believe. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's sing together.